Normally when we think about artificial intelligence, we think about optimizing some particular task. There is in most circumstances, through computation, a optimal chess move in any given circumstance, or maybe an, an optimal way to determine a pattern in a set of data, or an optimal way to solve a mathematics problem, or to route information through servers, or whatever the case may be. Um, but what about creative tasks? For example, if we wanted to create uh, new characters in a video game and come up with personality traits, are there optimal personality traits? It seems like that's not necessarily something that can be optimized. Uh, similarly, if, if we want to give a computer a bunch of information and tell it to create very nice looking, beautiful PowerPoint slides out of this information, is there inherently one kind of optimal way of doing that, or is that too more of a creative task? Philippe Pasquier is a PhD in artificial intelligence who is now focusing a lot of his own research on artificial creativity, or what is sometimes called artificial creativity. In this particular interview, we delve into uh, how to define artificial creativity, how to train machines to be what we might call creative, and what developments in that field in the next 10 years might permit in terms of actual creativity being exhibited in technologies that you and I use today. So you get a bit of his predictions as well. So without further ado, we'll roll directly into the episode. So Philippe, to start things off, um, let's define the term creative computation. I, I don't think all that many people are familiar with the kind of art that computers are, are able to, to, to work on or, or what else a creative computer would kind of chip away at. What is, how is that term defined? Well, so there's still, uh, still a debate about how to best define it, but the idea is that it's a subfield of artificial intelligence, which I, I know your uh, auditors uh, know about, For sure. as a subfield of AI that is looking at exploring the automation of creative processes. So it's called sometimes computational creativity, sometimes it's called artificial creativity, but the idea always is to try to undow machines with creative behaviors. And as a field, it investigates both uh, creativity as it is. Can we understand creativity? Can we model it? And in a way, it's part of cognitive science that way. If we can model it, probably the models are complex, and can we make computer simulations of it? And then uh, it also inquires creativity as it could be. Can we think of processes that we are human with our brain, you know, might be incapable of, but that we are interested in, in implementing in a machine because we think the outcome of those processes will be interesting and creative. Got it. So n not necessarily just replicating what we can do as people, but conceiving of creativity in the creative process beyond our own capacities. Kind of like we use AI now to fulfill roles beyond our own capacities and analyzing data or whatever the case, the case may be. You had mentioned off microphone here a little bit that AI's primary applications today, certainly in industry, are more in tasks that can be optimized, where there is a, a relatively clear point or a definitive goal, you know, an optimal chess move, uh, and an and optimal way to understand a conversation, you know, what the words mean. Um, there's a way to win in, in some sense, an, an objective way to measure. Um, where might computational creativity play a role in those non-objective spaces? I think a lot of us really associate AI with, you know, uh, for lack of better terms, those more straightforward, goal-oriented optimization uh processes, but I don't think it has to be that way. Where would creative computation apply itself? 
So, so that's, that's really the, the key uh, central element in the field, really, is how do you define creativity and where and now. So but you're very uh, right in, in pointing at, at that difference between traditional AI. That's how I explain, uh, I explain to my colleagues in AI conferences and machine learning conferences with them. They ask me, okay, so computational creativity, how is it not just straight AI? And that's really around this notion of creative tasks, which are really those tasks for which there's no clear best outcome. So sync uh choreography, but sometimes even the planning of, of movement. There's often not an optimal way to serve a beer, you know? Yep. Uh, and then uh, music composition, interpretation of music, uh, but also a lot of design tasks, designing a level for a video game, uh, drawing, painting, designing new characters, new narratives, uh, writing poetry, jokes, in a way, AI, uh, and, that's, and that's normal, uh, historically, has been starting by looking at rational problems solving because rational problems are really well defined and we can solve them. Uh, if not optimally, then we try, can try to come close to optimal solutions with computer. And, yep. and a lot yep. of the history of AI is about that. And you know, now we fly planes, we regulate nuclear plants, we design electric circuits, we diagnose disease, etc. But um, but a lot of the creative, the, the use of computers nowadays are not those tasks, and we should not stop solving those tasks. By the way, but the, a lot of the of the newer use of computers are about creative and entertainment sort of computing. And so, really, we're interested in going beyond questions around uh, machine addressing intelligence tasks in terms of rational problem solving. Also, looking at those other tasks that indeed require intelligence in the sense that usually they're made by a human brain that, that you know, uh, has intelligence. And then we want to ask the question, can machine be creative and can they tackle those tasks and what type of algorithm and approaches are best within the field and then know how of AI and machine learning are best for those particular tasks which are a bit softer tasks if you wish. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about some of those softer tasks where uh, we're attempting to make some progress in this this field of creative computing. Um, what are some softer tasks that that you know research labs like your own are chipping away at today that we can really talk about? So yeah, in my lab we, we do quite a bit in, in visual art and in uh, movement generation, but maybe our specialty is in is in music uh, music composition. So composition, interpretation, even improvisation. So we develop agents that, that do those tasks. And then we, uh, we compare algorithms between each other, but we also compare uh, the performance of the agents with, um, with human composers. And, um, and then we run empirical studies uh, trying to find out if people can tell. So it's a bit like a musical Turing test, if you wish. Yes. If people can tell the difference between um, machine-generated musical score and human-write uh, musical score. Huh. Oh, okay, got it. Um, so music being one example, we'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about approaching human capability, because I know with, <clears throat> with music sometimes, from what I gather, uh, you folks are able to, to create music with these agents that, that is difficult to discern from, from sort of, uh, human tunes. Um, for, for other applications, you mentioned visual art. What are examples here? You know, are, are there, um, machines that are, creating variations of pictures? Or are they painting with actual brushes? Um, what, what kind of visual art uh, problems are, are we uh, chipping away at or, or working on or aiming to create? Well, uh, well, Daniel, you, you'll be surprised at the variety of systems and approaches and the variety of sub-problems that have been addressed. For example, generative visual art um, is, is, quite a big, is quite a big field. And so it ranges from 
uh, systems that are just doing style imitation. You give them painting by a certain painter or from a certain area, and you give them pictures, and they're going to do non-photorealistic rendering. So basically, you're going to try to emulate painting, but in a software, using pure soft, purely in a software way, um, they're going to try to make a rendering of the target pictures in the style of the corpus, so in the style of the of the uh, paintings you've been showing to the system. So that's called style imitation. We do that for music too, by the way. Hmm. Usually those machines, you know, they, they can be creative, but like humans, they need to be exposed to a lot of material before they get any good at it. So, you know, like a human composer can't compose, well, he couldn't compose if he would have ne never listened to any music. Uh, for machine, it, it works uh, in very similar ways. So yeah, in visual art, we get a lot of systems that do uh, non-photoristic rendering, as trying to do style imitation. So that's uh, one type of uh, approaches. And then you get systems that are more interested in, um, in animation and capturing the style of movements. So such things such as uh, right now uh, in video games, there's so many animators working on doing keyframe animation. And so sometimes um, to better the quality of these, we do motion capture and also to make the process faster. But then motion capture, uh, like keyframe animation, are very really time consuming, they're very expensive. And so what we do now is we use machine learning to learn the movement style of, let's say, I have a very famous actor, uh, Mr. X, let's call him, uh, that comes in the studio for three days. I get a sample of the type of movements he has, and I get the machine to learn the way he moves, his uh, movement uh, style, if you wish. And then I can generate new movements that I've not seen with the style of this particular actor without using... Uh, humans animators to do, uh, you know, keyframe animation, which is painfully long, even though humans animator, you know, are the best at that. Um, but uh, with using uh, machine learning and creative computing. So that's another, you know, very practical example that, that meets a number of applications here. Got it. Okay. This whole idea of, of, uh, imitating of style certainly is a creative task, it seems. And you show a machine, um, a bunch of paintings by Dolly. Or you know a particular you know blue period of Picasso or um, some some uh, you know uh, classical works by Chopin or something along these lines to to imagine that a machine could create its own work but aiming to model what appear to be the textures or the patterns or the approaches or the 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 style of of those particular artists or as you had mentioned even. The, the the ways of moving the, the the speed or the cadence or whatever the case may be of of moving that that I find to be quite interesting um, it seems like there'd be applications even outside of art you know if you want to model somebody's negotiating style you know someone who's a good salesperson um, or a good leader you know it seems like you could use kind of similar systems to discern body language patterns and voice tonality and and uh, uh, statements and, and responses and things like that. It seems like there's a, a wide variety of application there. Absolutely, I totally agree. And, and often we focus on the arts because um, you know it's a it's it's a neat uh, domain it for those neat. generative systems because then we're sure that you know there's no optimal solution and, and we, we we really can test the algorithm in those uh, domains. But there's there's creativity is everywhere. So the boundary of the field. Uh, uh, itself uh, have to be uh, refined and are being uh, defined. But even in, in there's a lot of tasks where there's hybrid um, rational thinking and also creative thinking involved at the same time. You know, there's people working on creativity in mathematics. 
you know, some ways of doing some proofs are more creative than others. And before you know the proof, you got to be creative to find it. And it's not just rational problem solving. As you said, some people do well in negotiation, not because they know their game theory better, but because their, their negotiation style is really in the sense of the type of word they would choose, the little nuances, and the things they would order things would make a difference. And we have a lot to learn at that level regarding that. And it usually doesn't fit in the type of algorithm and approach that AI has. And the more, more we spend time interacting with computers, the more uh, HCI moves towards full body interaction, the more, you know, the more the, the systems and, and their interactivity uh, improves and the more of them are embedded in our world, the more it's important that they get they get to uh, recognize, represent, and eventually manipulate all those subtleties that humans, um, that are very characteristic from human. When it comes to, to normal creativity, everyone is creative. And then, so that's style imitation. And style imitation, uh, you know, there's people that are really good at imitating other people, so humans can do it too. Um, it's not necessarily always considered as being, you know, super uh, genius style of creativity. It's 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 a lower type of creativity, but it's really where we are right now in computational creativity. And there's other types of creativity, like transformational creativity or combinatorial creativity, that are harder uh, for computers to exhibit. Right. So computer really inventing a new style and convincing people that that you know that's the new type of music everyone wants to listen to. That, for example. I'm not aware of, right? So there's a moment where human creativity and the way humans deal with culture has to be done by humans, you know, and often in those examples, actually, uh, the person, um, like for example, when in art, there is uh, this well-known uh, French artist who uh, invented Objet Trouvé, which is really this idea of put, uh, putting a regular objects that were found uh, in a museum and then make them a piece of art. Yes, so yes. style of art, right? It, it comes with an argumentation and I, I can't see, you know, machines coming with new ideas that were unless they are reprogrammed to do so in a very specific domain, you know, as per usual. Yeah, so that, that was, you define transformational creativity, was that the term? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. maybe I should have said a word about that. Uh, we're using often a, a typology of creativity one that was started by a philosopher in the UK called Margaret Borden. She uh -huh. was a philosopher of uh, science and she specialized in in, in, um, in the philosophy of uh, creativity. And she yeah, she defines exploratory creativity, which is the idea of you have a space, let's say the space of all the songs for Bob Marley, and you want to create a new valuable and original element in that space that an unbiased observer would classify as being some Bob Marley. If you don't know all of Bob Marley, right? Yeah. And so that's style imitation, really. That's exploratory yep. creativity. And then combinatory creativity is this idea of all the cell phones and then the space of all the video projectors. And someone has the idea of making a cell phone that would also be a video projector, which, by the way, is a great idea. And I'm sure someone is working on it. But, um, but that's the idea of combining two spaces and the combination. Uh, if the creative act, so people do that a lot when they use when they do metaphors or when they invent uh, new new puns and some types of, of jokes where they combine all sort of references uh, in there. And the third type of of creativity is transformational creativity, where really you you change the space, the creative space itself, and you expand it. So that's really this idea of creating a new style or transforming an existing style. And that for that, I have to say, uh, computers are not quite uh, ready uh, yet, yeah. no, not necessarily do we want them to be ready. Yeah, I suppose, well, the double-edged sword, I suppose, and there's enough uh, 
talk about the tribulations of uh, and, and considerations of moving artificial intelligence forward and how far. Um, to that note, maybe we can talk about the your thoughts around the future of creative computing. Um, right now, as far as I know, and, and you can correct me, uh, that's what I'm here for, to be corrected. Um, as far as creative computing's applications in the world today, maybe there's some sort of program creating new, you know, Mario Kart levels or something like that. Maybe, you know, there's clearly folks like yourself working on uh, imitating musical styles and creating compositions or, or, you know, art compositions or things along along those lines too. Um, but it, it would appear to me as though <clears throat> creative computing today is somewhat of a novelty. Like you had mentioned, it's not where, you know, quote unquote, straight AI has seemed to knuckle down for the last, you know, 40 years. It's not, not exactly the primary area of emphasis. Um, and for most of us, it would probably be novel and somewhat fun and maybe surprisingly fun and novel, but but maybe we don't notice its sort of implications and applications in the world today. Um, a decade from now, given sort of our trajectory with creative computing, where do you think we might be? I'm not asking you to be pessimistic or optimistic, but just genuinely gleaning your thoughts. Um, what might be possible with with a machine intelligence in, in the coming 10 years Ahead, where might we see creative computing in action more so than it is today, if at all? Uh, well, I, I sure hope we will see it in action. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's a very really great question, Daniel. Um, well, right now, use every day, and a purely reactive software lab, not autonomy, no proactivity. When you open, you know, a, a music composition software uh, or a drawing software, any sort of uh, video editing software that any software that can uh, allow you to achieve a creative task, you might have in your mind what you want to do uh, clearly defined, and you're going to click on buttons for hours, sometimes days, if you're a professional, maybe weeks or months, even though you could tell the computer, oh, it's like this editing I did the other day, but with these other shots, and I want the same type of effect, blah, blah, ah. give me five drafts, and I start from there. So in reality, the software do not work for you. In lab, we... we try to develop algorithms and make validations and evaluations of systems that are purely generative. Where I give them a corpus, I, I click generate, it makes me generations, and then I use humans to compare the, the quality of the generated versus quality of the corpus, and then I show my system is good. But that's really pure lab. And in, in reality, in 10 years, and that's what's going to happen in the next 10 years, I know we already start working on it, so, so if I'm still around, things should happen. Uh, we're working with a number of companies already to try to it's uh, some sort of uh, in between those two extremes. So, in fact, instead of purely reactive systems with no autonomy that do nothing for you, like the current software or purely generative system, we want it is interactive system for computer-assisted creativity. Uh -huh. and the humans, it's very important that humans keep uh, keep their creative uh, and be able to see the system and to drive the system. But uh, right now, there's no support from the system in those creative uh, tasks. And so we're really looking at developing creativity support tools, computer-assisted creativity tools, whether it's computer-assisted composition, computer-assisted animation, computer-assisted you know, de level design, et cetera, et cetera. This is really the, the economical target we have here. And the field is new, you're right. Uh, you know, the, the main international conference in the area is that its third edition? We're talking like three years. Yeah, it's yeah. Set shop before, and it's a long history. There's always been a pioneer in every domain, right? But still, the field is really, really new because creative computing itself is sort of new. You know, 20 years ago, 
even when AI was already big, computers were used for major applications. Like most of the processors in the world were devoted for uh, engineering uh, or military application, and they would be uh, very uh, fitted to rational problem solving. Right. Yep. Right now, the massive, vast, vast majority of the processors are used for video games, you know, interactive uh, applications, and then all the computer entertainment with dealing with pictures, music, uh, etc. So. The market itself has completely shifted and moved. What we do with computers, what humanity does with computers, has shifted. Not that we don't do military applications and we, we don't regulate nuclear plants anymore, but you know there's a, a variety of new applications that have been popping out just because um, everyone owns one, if not several, processors or computers nowadays, right? For so sure, for I, sure. see, I see a great future for those software applications and in terms of the trajectory of AI, it makes complete sense. I know myself, I was trained as a logician and then I learned machine learning and more statistical uh, methods and, and multi-agent systems and distributed computing. And then after my PhD, I realized that in fact, you know, the future of those areas would be to, because we, we're getting so much better at rational problem solving, now we move out of that comfort zone and try to address uh, more complex problems. And, and again, they're, they're not more complex uh, in principle, they're just more complex because we spent well less time looking at them. Yes, yes, yes. So a bit of the pendulum you're, you're predicting, and, and it would make sense in some intuitive sense, uh, the, the pendulum of the development of artificial intelligence really being uh, in, in one particular domain, um, in these optimizable, more rational, straightforward-oriented tasks, might create a bigger void for opportunity, you know, economically or in terms of progress for for the other side of the coin, where we really, like you said, we haven't focused as much, we don't have as much of a track record. Within 10 years, do you think, and I, I like the examples, you know, you, you pull up a, um, you're in a video editing software and you say, hey, you know, this this video of this, um, you know, theater presentation, um, I'd like to be able to put together the three acts of this play uh, in the same way that I did with the previous ones, with a somewhat similar mix of shots and angles, um, and with the same introduction, only with white text. You can't say that to the machine and have it take a swing at what you're talking about and, and put it together for you or produce multiple drafts that you can then start tinkering with. You have to build from scratch, drag each, you know, each uh, video clip and edit it individually and splice it and slice it individually. Um, so I, I like that as an example. You know, you think about architecture software. You want to model a house. You have an idea of what the foundational sort of constraints are and what, what sort of factors you want to include, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, um, what's important for this particular family, whatever the case may be. Can we start off with three or four uh, unique different home layouts that would permit these kind of behaviors and, and can we just can we draft those you know it's more open-ended more white canvas I, re I really do see oodles of value there I mean software development there's just a lot there in 10 years time might we be there in some sense you know whether it's a PowerPoint equivalent some kind of a, a you know a CAD software or a video editor might computer-aided creativity uh, be reasonable within the 10 years and if so what would be reasonable what might we expect what might be possible um, yeah, that's a good question, um, and it's also a, a, the, the dangerous one. I mean, as it is. Niels Bohr, the, the physicist, used to say that the historians are fighting about what happened in the past. We're not quite sure what's happening in the present, so trying to predict the future is 
is always a very risky game, right? It is. It is. And I'm not just to be clear too. Uh, you know, yeah, you're not the first. Yeah, we're, we're. I'm not telling you to pull out a crystal ball. It's just like you know, you're you're in the field. If you were going to lick your finger and put it up in the air, what do you think the world's going to look like in ten years, or what might be possible? Basically, what might be possible? So yeah, I, I, I do think that we're going to get uh, more. So right now, with the rise of human-computer interaction, lots of research and lots of systems. We, you know, with the Kinect and also system, we start to get. Uh, you know, very slowly, though, away from this idea of we just map our alphabet on buttons, which is the idea of the keyboard, yep. and yep. we press those buttons one by one, right? But it took like 25 years to eventually get there, and it's just starting. Those touch interface, you know, since Apple made those releases in the early 2000s, have been thriving. So in terms of the type of systems I'm talking about, I really think it's going to happen, in, and if it's not in the next 10 years, maybe in the next 15 years, but I know it's already uh, on development. We have prototypes in some areas. Computer-assisted composition is for sure uh, blooming. You know, there's people who receive uh, in studios, professional studios, calls on Monday. Can you make two songs in the style of this uh, particular Beatles songs, but we don't want to pay the, the rights? So, okay. So there's people that are being paid for doing style imitation. Yeah. yeah. It's super well. So if that, you know, save them a few days of harmonization in the style of that person, which Sometimes, you know, composition, like any other job, can become uh, tedious and repetitive. For sure. Believe it or not, right? So same thing. And this, and, and I think the demand is there um, as well, realistically, from the market. Because maybe the example of film is not the best. Because if I do a, a one-hour-long or 12-hour-long feature, um, then I can have 100 person working on it for two years. And every second will be perfect. But when I have a video game with more than 10 million players, and there's a lot of them right now that play on average 20 hours per week, how many people do I need to compose the music or to do the animation if I want, you know, enough numbers of variety of characters, things don't repeat too much, uh, and then the storylines are still interesting? Well, the, 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 the answer is that way too many. And that's why the AAAI games in the game industry, which is now bigger than film and television together, um, you know, they are, they are costing hundreds of millions of dollars nowadays, and it's not really sustainable for the company to continue that way. So there's a need for automation, there's a need for generative system, and there's a need for the application of AI and machine learning in those uh, areas, for example. Well, I, I, And because there's a yeah. need, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that, and we have the science uh, that is developing now to address those problems efficiently, I'm confident it will happen. I like it. I, I, uh, and I, I'm, I'm always interested in gleaning potential um, business applications of, of where the research is actually taking us. So I appreciate you. Uh, shedding some light on where those applications may in fact be. I think that's some fantastic food for thought. I certainly hope that within 10 years, when I create slides to go speak at a university or something, I can uh, tell it to some degree what sort of permutation of what previous presentations I want to create and just have some drafts made up rather than having to find new images on Google Images and go through all that monotony again. I had, hadn't thought about that as an artificial intelligence challenge because probably because I'm in the... Uh, the rational problem uh, mode of conceiving AI, but I think, by golly, there's a, a million permutations of that exact same uh, assistive creativity uh, consideration that you're mentioning there, and I'll, I'll certainly be rooting for that happening. I know that you guys will be cracking away in your own lab and, and uh, working towards that too. Philippe, I know we're just about on time. I want to say a uh, big thanks for being able to share some of your insights and thoughts about on the future of creating computer. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Daniel. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. 
If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives, top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category as well as articles, news, market research and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.